Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is Friday, May 7th, and we're still buzzing about the biggest COVID-19 story of the week. President Biden surprised many in industry and around the world with his decision to support waiving some intellectual property protections for the COVID-19 vaccines in order to increase production around the world, including in poorer countries, and ultimately boost vaccinations. Sarah, you looked at this for us. Where, where do we stand at the moment? So um, since President Biden made the, or his U.S. trade representative made the announcement, um, Wednesday um, afternoon, a number of other countries that have been sort of holding out on supporting this idea have come forward and given their support. However, um, Germany in particular has um, said they don't support this and the um, World Trade Organization generally operates on consensus on these things. So it seems unclear whether this is going to move forward, even with, you know, the powerful weight of the U.S. behind it. Um, it also seems like the WTO may punt on really further re-examining this until December. And that's, you know, we're only, I sometimes I forget where we are in the calendar year these days, but <laughs> it's only May. Um, December's <laughs> quite a long way away. And certainly when you're dealing with it, you know, an ongoing crisis and, you know, um, some countries like India really in the um, throes of really bad outbreaks, you know, punting to December is would be quite a um, big loss for people who believe this could increase vaccinations. Um, in terms of kind of the um, impact on the industry and the U.S. kind of getting behind this, I think um, a lot of people felt like you know, this is really a symbolic or political move on behalf of the U.S., but it may not have a lot of, like, practical or material impact for industry. Like, it is very important that the Biden administration is getting behind this idea, but, you know, there's people kind of say, well, this is will become a slippery slope and they'll, you know, support revoking IP and all these other situations. The statement put out by USTR seems to alleviate that type of fear because, it, it, you know, they really emphasize how extraordinary the situation is um, and that the administration really does believe in IP. So this sort of seems like the exception to the rule for the Biden folks. Um, and then, of course, even if, you know, the, um, you know, the World Trade Organization, um, thanks to this kind of U.S. push gets on board with this idea it's it's much this is really the first step in a process that might make it easier for other countries and manufacturers to you know produce kind of copies of these vaccines um in a lot of cases there'd be a lot of financial support needed there'd also be what's known as like tech transfer which is essentially like yes the ip is helpful but it's sort of the the recipe book if you will um, people say, and you know, a lot of in a lot of cases, people essentially would really need the companies or other experts in making these vaccines to really walk them through how exactly you get from the recipe to a successful product, um, and that would be something that would require additional cooperation above and beyond, you know, what the WTO waiver. So, you know, while advocates of kind of um, changing how intellectual property works 
and people who are really pushing for broader access to medicines, particularly um, in lower income countries, are really celebrating this move. There's certainly um, a lot that would need to happen before, you know, the drug industry would really, you know, feel a significant hit because of this decision. And they'll certainly have lots of avenues to kind of weigh in and affect how big of an impact it actually has going down the line. Yeah, I guess <clears throat> I, I wasn't surprised at all that some of the, you know, at least one other country came out and said this is a bad idea. I mean, Germany makes complete sense. BioNTech, Pfizer's partner with the mRNA vaccine, the first one to get approved is in Germany. So, you know, they're getting behind their homegrown, uh, you know, industry, so to speak. Um, I mean, the other thing that that the uh, that, that strikes me about this, and, and you mentioned it, we all kind of laugh because we forget where, you know, how long this has been going on. I mean, it, these kinds of negotiations take forever. <laughs> and, you know, even if they say like, I mean, December, I, I don't even know if that's, I, I have no idea how long this could take, but I mean, I could see this dragging out and the pandemic's under control. And all of a sudden there's a headline that comes across like, oh yeah, we negotiated the IP, the IP, the trips waiver for you know, for the vaccines. And we're all like, what, what, what do we need that for now? So it, it, yeah, I, I I I tend to wonder if you know this was just a, a really good political move, and you know just to kind of make some short term headlines, and then we'll all kind of it'll just kind of fade away at some point. Right, and there's um, that's one of the th arguments actually the industry uses, which is they say you know if you want to increase availability of vaccines, this is really not the way to do it because it's. Um, it can take so long and, you know, it doesn't solve all the barriers. Um, one thing industry has been pointing out is that, um, you know, there's raw material and other issues that need to be dealt with that this type of waiver doesn't really impact. So, and I think even Germany and their, um, you know, rejection of this idea yesterday was sort of also pointing out, you know, if the U.S., really wants to help um, vaccinate other countries. They have other ways. We as like a country have other ways to do that, um, particularly, you know, they were suggesting, you know, the Biden administration um, could work more in terms of donating more of the doses the U.S. is already yeah. um, producing overseas. Um, you know, right now the um, way to the Defense Production Act is working out, you know, that's sort of preventing export of some ingredients and products coming from the U.S. Um, so, right, there's a big debate about whether, you know, how, however you feel about this sort of topic, you know, whether, you know, this is really the way that would actually speed up vaccinating people faster. Now, the one thing in terms of sort of the logistics of this taking a very long time at WTO and so forth is people say, like, if the Biden administration really wanted this to happen, they have sort of the pressure and, you know, the influence of this huge national um, or international power of the U.S. to to put pressure to make that happen faster. So maybe if they don't do that, that's a sign that, again, like you said, they just sort of wanted this like headline showing they were kind of being hard on pharma to some extent, <laughs> but they really don't want to do the follow through that would actually make a difference. Um, 
So there's a lot of ways to sort of think about this in a sort of semi-cynical um, <laughs> kind of political move, political move that's, like I said, is sort of, it's more um, symbolic and thinking about the industry standing in Washington and the world than really a sort of true material impact on other country, other countries or manufacturers making companies vaccines or really financially hurting their bottom line or again, people in the world getting vaccines faster because of this. Yeah, there certainly is a big uh, difference between saying you want to do something like the Biden administration just did and actually sort of, you know, really sort of putting all your effort into trying to get it done. Uh, as you were saying, Sarah, they could be sort of kind of uh, working behind the scenes to sort of change Germany's mind. Uh, um, it's it's interesting that sort of kind of the, the, the Biden administration had already been pivoting to sort of kind of looking at, uh, you know, sort of kind of being the um, arsenal of vaccines uh, to the uh, to the world uh, um, before this announcement, uh, especially you know given the limited uh, um, uh, vaccine uptake in the U.S. Uh, um, so far, obviously making progress, but not nearly as much progress as uh, uh, say the U.K. has uh, has had. And uh, I don't know to what extent this is kind of could be a you know a pretext or an entree to sort of kind of to um, you know trying to sort of kind of uh, get a better deal out of uh, Pfizer and Moderna in terms of uh, you know, the next round of, uh, um, you know, vaccine contracts that the U.S. is trying to negotiate with them and perhaps to sort of kind of to, uh, to, to be a, uh, a major donor. The U.S. obviously sort of kind of has uh, contracts, uh, you know, with a variety of manufacturers for uh, more than uh, um, enough doses for the U.S. at, uh, um, at this point. But the uh, AstraZeneca and J&J uh, um, uh, shots, which are going to be held up by uh, manufacturing issues to a large degree and, uh, um, you know, other products, Novavax isn't uh, um, uh, sort of really sort of going online in the same uh, the same way yet. Their trials are still coming along. So, uh, um, you know, it's a uh, um, a question of sort of kind of uh, what the um, the real purpose aside from kind of winning uh, um, winning fans of the left is maybe it's sort of kind of uh, sort of kind of brings uh, um, industry to the negotiating table in a way that uh, um, you know, they hadn't been uh, they hadn't been before. Yeah, I did see actually um, an analyst note yesterday from Jeffries that sort of suggested that maybe one impact of this is right, that industry loses some leverage in terms of pricing of products um, globally, you know, that maybe it sort of forces them to to, to sort of avoid the breaking of the IP um, to right to, to maybe think about giving better deals to other countries. Of course, in certain cases, um, you know, like AstraZeneca has already has priced its product pretty um, low. Um, you know, some of the co- the companies have at least for sort of a certain period of time, you know, agreed to kind of price only essentially at cost. So it's not clear how long that will last. Um, so, right, that's an interesting there's lots of like ways to think about this as more of a like what leverage does this give moving forward um, in terms of pricing. And the other thing that I think um, like people who are really trying to we're pushing for this is are sort of hoping is maybe that the U.S. will now like sort of throw more money that Congress has appropriated related to vaccine um, manufacturing and supply change um, to kind of globally help the effort. There's like about $16 billion in funds, they believe, that's unspent from one of the U.S.'s recent stimulus packages that they think 
is could sort of be dedicated to this effort based on how Congress has appropriated the money. Um, so there's other things. And I think the other thing that um, some of the, you know, anti-pharma advocates here have, have also been saying is they're not saying that these companies shouldn't be compensated at all for kind of helping provide the IP and tech transfer. Um, they feel like the U.S. or other countries could compensate them in some way for it. Obviously, it probably would be less than pharma <laughs> companies <laughs> think it should be. So that was like an interesting part of that debate, too, to me, is that they weren't just, you know, t asking for a total free ticket from the companies. Yeah, the, the tech transfer is really sort of a uh, greatly underappreciated uh, aspect of this. Obviously, people have been talking about it a lot uh, um, since the announcement, but uh, um, especially with kind of with kind of very new technology uh, like this, it's, uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's it's not like there's kind of there are uh, um, mRNA uh, manufacturing facilities sitting idle just for kind of uh, because they can't come come up to come up with the uh, favorable contract terms with the uh, um, with the IP holders. It's a um, a whole new uh, um, you know way of uh, making things and sort of kind of very uh, um, uh, very complicated even for folks that we're having we're, having, uh, we're, we're they came up with it. So kind of the, the ramping up of the uh, manufacturing in, in the U.S. took a long time until they sort of figured all that stuff out. So it's a uh, um, you know, I've always thought that would be interesting if sort of if a uh, um, a country to kind of somehow uh, were able to call the uh, um, the world's bluff, and uh, um, obviously there's kind of there are various other implications. But through kind of if they just sort of uh, started making vaccines and dared uh, um, uh, you know dared people to uh, to stop them saying you know kind of it's not, uh, um, but it just doesn't work that way. There's not you're not going to be kind of in that kind of. Uh, you know, dramatic movie situation where we're kind of where we're kind of they're handing out free vaccines and we're kind of through kind of a mustache, you know, twirling villains as we're trying to stop them. It just doesn't. It's 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 a. It really takes a lot of collaboration to get these things off the ground. Right, and Moderna, yeah. since the fall, had actually basically said they wouldn't enforce their IP, and so that that essentially has given them sort of some credibility to the statements that industry has said, which is right. It's really, um, it's not that this is not the sort of um, the thing that is stopping more production or, um, you know, further access, because look, we've already said we wouldn't, you know, we're not going to go after people to do this and no one's really taken us up on this yet. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact that the CEO of Moderna on, a, on an analyst call said, I didn't lose any sleep last night over this, you know, it, that 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 says it all. I, mean, I think he 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 laid out like uh, you know they need all the stuff that that you would need to start up a man, manufacturing of this, and it's all things that are not easily that don't easily come by, like you know functioning cell lines and you know all the you know, all the, the sophisticated manufacturing math that you mentioned. I mean this this can't it isn't like this just pops up or it's you know or even like you know trying to start making cars or something. I mean it's a lot more. Uh, a lot more elaborate than, than any of than that. The other thing in kind of being on the, the contrarian side of this is that, you know, I, I wonder if some of the the kind of industry doom and gloom characterization of this might be a little a little overblown. I mean, you know, there there's already talk about how this will squelch innovation in the next pandemic or maybe in other settings. And, you know, I I, I still I still gotta believe that if something like this happened again, God forbid, or even not even to as bad as the COVID outbreak was. But I mean, 
I, I would think there would be pharma companies stepping up, you know, to to you know to come up with a vaccine or or a therapeutic or, or something like that, and not because they're altruistic, but because they see there's money to be made at least in the short in the short term before the IP is taken away. Right. I mean, plus, I mean, one thing to think about here is and an argument for the sort of access to medicine advocates is that governments around the globe and certainly in the U.S. played provided industry with a lot of money to do this. So if, um, you know, if in the future we get into a crisis and the government is willing to hand you money that might end up helping you, um, you know, make billions of dollars, as has been the case for Pfizer, they reported earlier this week, you know, it's hard to see industry completely saying no, there will be other, there will be lots of, there's going to be incentives again, probably thrown at them to help. Um, so, so um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a fallacy in the slippery slope argument. Again, like I said, the Biden folks were pretty clear. They're not, um, this isn't a move where they're going to say, okay, and next we're coming after your cancer drugs and, you know, your RA treatment and, and so forth. I think this was a very limited move on their behalf. Yeah, obviously sort of industry hates the, uh, the precedent, uh, but uh, um, as, as you all were noting, uh, you know, depending on how you slice it, the uh, Pfizer COVID vaccine was uh, the largest uh, product launch of all time. So it's, uh, um, it's hard to say that uh, you know, next time around, uh, oh, well, you know, well, they'll be, they won't do it because it'll only be, say, the second or third largest launch of all time before you know, <laughs> COVID-26 or, or what have you. So it's, uh, um, it is, uh, um, it's still, it's still been pretty, uh, um, pretty successful for the, uh, the folks whose vaccines actually worked out. And it was a great test drive for the mRNA technology too. I mean, they've already talked about this could be employed for other vaccines and potentially just as effective as we're seeing with the COVID vaccines. So that leads us to our next COVID-19 related story, which focuses on the state of the FDA's facility inspection regime. A report released this week indicated that the agency had to delay 48 drug application decisions because inspections were deferred, including six considered mission critical. The report also said that in the best case where operations suddenly resumed to normal with no, with no travel restrictions, only half of the planned domestic inspections could be conducted before the end of this fiscal year. And on maybe a more hopeful note, we also learned that the agency was able to use alternative tools to avoid more than 50% of the pre-approval inspections that, that were necessary during the previous four fiscal quarters when the pandemic was at its peak, and that the remote records requests in particular were proving helpful and may become more popular after the pandemic when in-person inspections become more widespread again. So for the panel here, which do you think is the bigger issue in play? The fact that the agency was able to avoid a large chunk of inspections with alternative tools, or which seems like a long-term success, or that 48 application decisions were delayed due to a lack of an inspection, which is a more near-term problem? I guess I'll go glass uh, half full and say that the uh, um, alternative inspection techniques, uh, um, you know, it's a good uh, um, uh, good precedent, just like we we're talking about pre bad precedents uh, in the last segment. This is, uh, um, you know, something that I think uh, um, industry and FDA should be excited about. And, uh, um, you know, the fact that there were um, disruptions because of the pandemic um, is, uh, um, 
you know, something we all experienced and, uh, um, uh, you know, hopefully those applications will uh, um, uh, get uh, um, get their uh, uh, manufacturing facilities, uh, um, uh, you know, cleared in uh, in due time and uh, um, we'll have a uh, more robust regulatory system on the uh, the other end of the uh, uh, the pandemic. I think the pivot to remote inspections is really quite interesting because you don't necessarily think of FDA always as being so kind of willing to pivot easily, I guess, to sort of new ways of doing. I mean, you certainly don't think about the government sort of as being, you know, willing to quickly and easily pivot to kind of new ways of doing things. Um, So I think the fact that they were able to really um, rethink you know, what they needed to do in person or how they could, you know, ramp up inspections in different ways so fast is, is pretty impressive for the government, which tends to be, you know, it just it's structured in a way that kind of tends to make it harder to be um, flexible and try new things um, quite so easily. Um, so. Yeah, it's a, you know, I, I was really, you know, kind of a, impressed with the way kind of the records request process kind of evolved, not necessarily from scratch because they've been able to do this for a few years now, but how they kind of figured out the best way to do it and kind of made it, you know, kind of standardized, you know, so quickly where, you know, they made, they started making decisions early in the review cycle that, that they could do a remote, uh, remote uh, records request instead of an in-person inspection. And then they would, request the documents and then they got better at which documents they actually wanted to see and which data they needed to see. And then, so it, it, it went from kind of being something that you didn't hear about until after your, your complete response letter or something came back to saying, Oh yeah, we did a remote request and this, these problems were found. It was kind of, it, it got into the kind of a, they got into a, a kind of a uniform pathway with this really, really quickly. Um, but I guess I'm going to take I'll take the negative side of this and that, you know, 48 applications is a lot. And, you know, the fact that they're you know, these are treatments that aren't getting to patients, which is going to be the exam, the the argument that industry will make. But, you know, the fact this is that's 48 drugs that aren't on the market, that aren't making money, that are sitting idle because, you know, because because of the pandemic, because the, the agency can't do you know the things they need to do. And we've already heard a lot of arguments that industry has bent over backwards to try and get them to do in-person inspections, do video conference inspections, do whatever it is you need to do to get these facilities approved so they can you know, move on with some of these applications and get decisions. And, you know, just hasn't been it hasn't been done. So, yeah, I, don't, I guess you could you could see it both ways. <laughs> Finally today, in a bit of non-COVID news, we're going to take a look at reimbursement issues for CAR-T therapies. Kathy, you wrote about applications for add-on payments at CMS for some of these treatments. What were the uh, big issues that you saw there? Yeah, there were um, actually four of them um, that CMS notes in a recent proposed rule, and um, two were submitted by Bristol-Myers Squibb, one by Gilead, and one one by J&J. And there are a few takeaways. Um, and first of all, I should say, just by way of background, that the the NTAPs are meant to supplement payments in like these bundled payment amounts that are known as diagnosis-related groups or DRGs. And you know they're intended for new expensive technologies that 
the DRGs can't yet accommodate because there's sort of a lag time in how those are updated. So what what um, CMS, the, the takeaways from the rule um, or the proposal first were that CMS seems pretty skeptical about um, awarding and NTAPs as they're called to CAR-Ts that have the same or similar indication as the CAR-Ts already on the market. You know, they, they, of course, this is a proposal, so there's no definitive conclusion, but they indicate that um, Bristol-Myers abecma, um, which is indicated for B-cell, large B-cell lymphoma, and Gilead's yescardus, um, which is indicated for mantle cell lymphoma, are, are too similar to Kimraya and yescarda. So um, that doesn't seem to bode well for their applications. Um, the second thing is the two other CAR-Ts that applied um, are both seeking indicate or indicated for multiple myeloma, which, which seems more likely to succeed. However, CMS seems to be confirming that when two CAR-Ts seek um, NTAPs for the same indication, that they're going to consider those two applications together, which means that if approved, they would have the same payment amount, which could undercut like any reimbursement advantage if one were to get um, higher levels on their own. Um, third, CMS reiterates, uh, by the way, and that's the way they handled Kimraya and Yescarta. Um, they were in the same um, application as well. Third, uh, CMS kind of reiterates um, the possibility that because CAR-Ts have their own DRG, that they may not be eligible for NTAPs at all. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's hard to know where they're going to come down on this, but they do mention it again in this proposal. They mentioned it before when they announced the DRG for CAR-Ts. So we'll see where they um, go with that. And then finally, um, CMS mentions that it is considering expanding the, CAR -T the DRG for CAR-Ts to include other non-CAR-T immunotherapies, which would be, um, you know, could present an opportunity for other similar um, treatments. So those are kind of the high points from the proposal. I guess I'm shocked that CAR-T therapy could not be considered a new innovative technology anymore. I know. Well, they have very <laughs> specific criteria for these NTAPs. And actually, the DRG for CAR-Ts, I think it's like the highest DRG ever, like for comparable um, uh, treatments. So CMS could, could feel that, you know, that's, that's enough. Um, but we'll see. I, I concur with uh, Derek's remarks. This were kind of that, uh, you know, science is starting to move too fast for me. You know, I just, it, it seemed like, uh, you know, CAR-Ts were sort of the, uh, um, the, the cutting edge of uh, um, what uh, medicine can do. And now there are uh, too many of them for, for them to even feel, uh, um, feel special anymore. So it's, uh, um, uh, I guess in some ways, is this the, is this reimbursement uh, situation, Kathy, sort of an example of, uh, you know, how these payments are supposed to work? That's kind of once, uh, um, you know, once there's a relatively crowded class, that's kind of that it doesn't uh, get yeah. uh, um, big extra payments anymore. And sort of kind of it's supposed to encourage uh, yeah. industry to uh, to move on to the next uh, next breakthrough. Uh, um, 
what do you think it yeah. is for kind of uh, um, Medicare who are really trying to squeeze uh, um, a valuable medicine uh, um, when they when they should be paying uh, paying what it actually costs? You know, I maybe a little of both. I mean, they they've decided in developing these policies for the CARTs, they've they've decided to operate within their sort of existing mechanisms. Um, and you know that the the NTAPs have their eligibility criteria, and they're very specific. And you know you can see CMS's point if if you know there are other CARTs that have the same indication that they they don't meet certain criteria. So um, you know it it is a it is there is a tension there though because even with the DRG at the level that it is. Um, and add-on payments, a lot of hospitals still feel that they end up short-changed with reimbursement. So, I mean, and that's why I think four other um, CARTs are seeking add-on payments. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, this is another 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 issue that'll be a good one to to watch going forward. Definitely. Yeah. Well, they're going to accept comments on this proposed rule, and then we'll see what they what they decide. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also you can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>